Hi everyone, my name is Mal Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. I'm fortunate today to welcome three amazing guests. Our first guest is Dr. Sherry Watt. Sherry is a professor of, uh, in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program at the University of Iowa. Dr. Watt recently edited a book entitled Design Designing Transformative Multicultural Initiatives, Theoretical Foundations, Practical Applications, and facilitator considerations. Dr. Watt has over 20 years of experience in designing and leading educational experiences that involve strategies to engage participants in dialogue that is meaningful, passionate, and self-awakening. Our next guest is Dr. Julie Owen. Dr. Owen is an Associate Professor of Leadership and Integrative Studies in the School of Integrative Studies at George Mason University, where she teaches courses on socially responsible leadership, civic engagement, and community-based research. She's a scholar for the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and is co-editor of both editions of the Handbook of student, for Student Leadership Development. She's active on several national research teams, including serving as the PI of the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership Institutional Survey and a research member with the Leadership Identity Development Project. And our final guest is Dr. John Dugan. John is Director of Program Quality Design and Assessment for Youth and Engagement Programs at the Aspen Institute. John formerly served as a professor in the Higher Education Graduate Program at Loyola University Chicago, where he taught courses on leadership, human development, and multiculturalism. He's the principal investigator for the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, and John also published a book earlier this year entitled Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Welcome, everybody. Hey. Hello. Hi. All right. So I'm uh, really thrilled to welcome you all back to the podcast and lean on your expertise once again. Uh, the hope with this particular conversation is that we can uh, hear as we're coming uh, shockingly somehow to the end of the year to discuss key impressions from 2017 in the world of student leadership. So I thought we could just start off with this. Um, Sherry, can you tell us what have you learned in 2017? Hmm. Yeah, so I was um, I'm pondering this question, and um, I think what I've observed first is that um, it's it's such a crazy time in the social and political landscape that I, you know, feel myself getting hit from all sides. So um, what I've learned is to notice and honor and recognize um, the exhaustion, um, and try to make sure I'm taking some time for myself um, while I'm also simultaneously trying to come up with strategies um, both in my scholarship and in my day-to-day -day interactions with people to try to somehow deal with or make some kind of social change or some kind of um, some kind of difference in the world so I'm, I'm I feel like I've learned that you have to balance that and there are ways that I have to do that you know by um, reducing my consumption of um, media and social media at times. Um, and um, I've also, I think, tried to learn, and, and because it's been so hectic, how important it is to honor um, the humanity in people, to treat people with, um, with some type of care and concern, and um, even the hardest part that I think I'm still working on and is to do that even with people that I vastly disagree with. So mm -hmm. still doing some work to try to recognize their humanity. So that's what I'm, I, I will say I'm learning. I wouldn't say I've learned it, but those are the things that I'm working on and that have come to me in this time. Yeah, yeah, what a really insightful start. Uh, John, you've had 
quite the year. You've published a book. You uh, are in a new position. What have you learned this year? Uh, well, I suppose I would uh, perhaps turn inward on this one and say I, I've learned that there's life after academia, uh, which is <laughs> shocking. And so um, I never imagined that this year when it began, I would no longer be in higher ed, but in an, uh, I would guess, I would maybe describe it as a higher ed adjacent role. Uh, so that has sort of been a, a huge learning curve for me around what that looks like. And I want to build off of what Sherry said in, in that in this transition, it's opened up and reminded me that we are all have this plasticity when we want to learn and we have this ability to learn at any stage of our life uh, and that the current climate that we're living in politically, socially, is necessitating a whole different way of navigating the world. Um, and I would echo everything that Sherry has said and then also add to that um, the position that I'm in in the organization I'm a part of now has opened up doorways and pathways of learning around what does it mean to argue joyfully um, and mm -hmm. what does it mean to engage with one another with that shared humanity and wh what are my obligations for that and what are my obligations to myself so where do I have to refill my cup um, where do I have to uh, push because I have some obligations because of my social location to engage in debate in ways that um, attempts to move us forward, but also repair what I think is a really fractured um, sense of community and dynamic in our country right now. So I would say I am absolutely in this really interesting place of um, self-exploration around those questions as well as trying to learn a, a new skill set that I thought I already had, to be honest. And so it is both frightening and exciting to know that there's a lot more learning to do there. Mm. Frightening, exciting. That's a good tagline for 2017. Uh, <laughs> can I Julie, just lift up the word? I'm sorry. Can I just lift up the words "joyful"? Um, argue joyfully. That was beautiful. Thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't claim ownership of it. It's one of the the five value propositions that undergird the organization I'm a part of, and it, uh, it's such an interesting term, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's great, and. Uh, I reflected a lot on sort of the uh, sort of culture of Schadenfreude and, and uh, kind of you know trying at least to do my part in moving away from that. Uh, Julie, how about you? What have you learned uh, here in 2017? Well, it's so wonderful that John brought up joy. I was just teaching um, Bobby Harrow's Cycle of Liberation with my women's leadership class this afternoon, mm. and we were looking at all the different levers of change around building community and coalescing and organizing actions to create change. And um, I've forgotten, I don't know, in all the years of teaching that model, that the core is um, the self, right? Self-love, self-esteem, balance, joy, security, spirituality. And my students couldn't get past that part today, and they just needed to be there in this time of um, – so it's so amazing. I feel like the universe is trying to tell me something that, Sherry, you brought that up, and then John echoed that as well, that how are we practicing these kinds of things and um, – where we, where we address our attention and what we feed, um, I find is really important um, in what we comes back to us, you know. So I've been trying to really find sources of positive motivation in my life um, more than I usually need to seek those out intentionally and carve out those spaces. So. Hmm. Okay. Great. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little more specifically about student leadership. Julie, I'm going to put you right back on the spot. Um, what do you think has changed in student leadership in 2017? 
Well, I'm so glad I get to go first on this one because I get to greatly embarrass my friend and colleague, John Dugan. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't steal your thunder, John, but at the risk of embarrassing him. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the sort of third wave of leadership education, and that John's book really heralds the connection of bringing critical consciousness into leadership studies. And I've had the great joy of teaching this book to freshmen um, at my university this semester. And I just can't tell you um, – how amazing it has been to watch them struggle with the notions of deconstruction and reconstruction of theories of how they sort of scaffold leadership and teaching them to go beyond sort of dichotomous and dualistic thinking. Um, and so, which has been, I underestimated how much of a challenge that would be, but also how important it would be to how they just show up in the world. So this idea that something can be flawed and still be useful, and I think of some of the scholarship around authentic leadership, or that something can be really fun and still be flawed, and the strengths conversation um, shows up there, strength finder, and some of those kinds of things. So I've just been so thrilled that students are, this, these words, John, are tumbling out of their mouths around there. My social location uh, makes me see commodification in this way, um, and I just can't believe this is part of a leadership class that was, would never have come out um, sort of using the prior sort of textbooks that existed today. So that to me is just been gold, and I really think it's essential to this conversation around what we need for healthy democracy, too. You know, we're teaching students, we can teach them to get beyond their echo chambers and sort of um, do a deeper kind of analysis. It's important, not just for leadership, but for the world. So that's my, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Sherry, how about you? What, uh, what do you think has changed in student leadership this year? Um, yeah, well, I, I want to also echo, I um, have lots of students that talk about um, the work that John's doing in his book and looking at things more critically, and, um, and it's, I think it's a wonderful contribution and a delight to um, hear students um, be able to access the um, information and um, the ideas and to be able to think about them and apply them. So I think one of the things that... Um, for me feels like has changed is because we are so um, inundated with all of this um, uh, really fast change, really, you know, a different issue every day. Um, I think we, the pace used to be slower and we mm -hmm. used to realize, you know, we can take our time to figure out and do and strategize and say, here's how we're going to go about addressing this issue. But every day there's a new issue and every second it's changed to, something else that's more complex or we haven't thought about this or we're getting hit on this and it just that turmoil. Um, so I, I think what's changed is that we've, I've always advocated sort of that we need to focus on how we are being together as opposed to what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that the, the fast nature of how everything is playing out and the toxicity of it is requiring that people have to sit back and think more carefully about how we interact on a day-to-day -day mm. level, on an individual, on a relational level. Um, so I think that's something that's on the, you know, on the horizon more and more, at least I, I feel like that because I feel like I'm trying to find ways to be with people so that I come up with outcomes or strategies or next steps that are more um, thoughtful because I have sat with people to really hear their ideas and to really interact with them in a way that's meaningful. So um, that's what I think is necessary when you're, when you're being hit so much. You can't think as, 
you know, as high as um, you know, ten thousand. You have to take ten thousand feet. You've got to really be at five thousand because you've got to figure out um, how to how to move forward um, when everything's changing so quickly. So, mm-hmm. hope that makes sense. Yes. Wow. Sure. Sure. I love yeah. that because I, part of what I hear you saying is that sometimes the relationality that we embed in our work with college student leadership is a convenient add-on or it's treated as non-essential and under the current conditions, that's no longer an option. Like any of this progress and work is conditioned on relationality. So thank you for that. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that question of speed is really interesting too. When I was an undergrad, I studied this, uh, I was a history major and I studied this, uh, this thing that apparently like really swept German culture in the late 1980s, which is a thing called the Historiker Strike, where Jürgen Habermas and this uh, historian that was like sort of a centrist but not nearly as left-leaning as Habermas were debating about sort of the the uh, whether it was allowable to discuss German suffering during uh, during World War II. Um, and uh, before that, you know, before that there was this idea that that was like absolutely not allowed. Like it was like completely reprehensible to discuss, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the suffering of the German people, sort of particularly at the conclusion of the Second World War. And uh, I, I say all that because this, like, really, you know, hot iron discussion happened over, like, three years via academic journals, you know, as opposed to right mm-hmm. now where I, I feel like the speed of things is happening, you know, really the speed of things and news and conversations on campus are happening in a really instantaneous manner. So... Um, mm. John, so, how about you? What, what do you think has changed in 2017? Yeah, I think that for me it's been really interesting to observe this from two lenses. So I spent the first half, half of 2017 working largely with graduate students and to some extent undergraduates through a leadership minor that we had at, at Loyola. And then the, the back half of 2017 working with youth ages 14 to 24. And a large portion of those were in that 14 to probably 18 age range. Mm-hmm. And so I think when I think about the landscape of youth leadership development, one of the major changes I've seen involves readiness of young people to engage in this work. So I, I for all of the conversation we've had in leadership studies about assessing developmental readiness and targeting our work, I worry and I wonder, because of the changes I've seen, how the, the extent to which we have underestimated as professional educators around leadership the readiness of young people to engage complexly mm. in this work. Mm. And so as I've traveled the country with young people, their readiness to jump into conversations in some ways exceed the readiness of, of professional educators to engage in those conversations. So they've been exposed and had to navigate some of these pacing and speed changes. They've had to negotiate what it means to have echo chambers online and try and build civil discourse. Um, they're innovating in such wildly insane ways that to me, I wonder uh, what was my guilt or my complicity in underestimating the readiness of young people to do mm. this work. Mm. Uh, and wow. and mm. are we actually keeping pace with the learning that they're demanding? And so um, and we, I saw that play out in the context of our minor where students were asking for more and our graduate programs where students are asking for more. And working with young people in, in localities where the ecology 
in, in St. Louis has demanded that they address issues of justice and leadership that perhaps we weren't prepared and they could teach us about. So that's the, that's the interesting thing for me of where do we then go when in some ways we have more learning to do around this topic than the people we're working with. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can completely um, hear what you're saying and see how I might, you know, even do that with my own kids, you know, around complex issues. Um, I, I think um, giving more credit to how they can manage it is really um, is, is, is different and important and, and to value what we could learn from them. I think that's a really great point. Yes, and how far behind our education system is potentially in the way we structure it to allow those spaces to happen, mm-hmm. right? So, like, mm-hmm. we still have so many sort of banking model spaces where people preach at students instead of sort of putting the, I'm a Parker Palmer person, but put the subject at the center and we all engage <laughs> around that. So I feel constantly I'm learning more from my students than they learn from me, which I don't know if that's imposter syndrome <laughs> or what that is, but, um, yes. you know, how do we make more spaces where people can realize and own the limits of their expertise um, and allow for that sort of innovation and creativity that John's talking about. Mm-hmm. I wonder how it also will play out for folks in the college context where young people are coming in and they've been so deeply embedded in activism and leadership in their local communities that the emerging leaders piece is necessary maybe for a much smaller portion of, of mm-hmm. folks or you know, entering a, and using certain prescriptive models or approaches um, actually pushes people out of our leadership education spaces because what they're actually ready to do is move towards you know, action around some of this because they've been thinking about it for so long. And that's not to suggest mm. they're still not learning to happen, but I think that some of these changes necessitate a review and a reconsideration of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, because we used to spend so much time helping people unlearn, you know, sort of the positional hierarchical approaches. Maybe we don't need that as much anymore. Maybe we can go mm-hmm. faster to some of these collectivist communal models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're, I think you're pointing to the readiness that there's, mm-hmm. you know, whereas we used to have to spend so much time um, unearthing that, um, the, even if it's present in these younger um, students, it is um, not as difficult to unearth because they're already in a space, space of readiness and openness, perhaps. Yep. I was um, in that piece right there for me, Sherry, is, is so potent because it was with um, some young people in D.C. talking about civil discourse in a fractured age, and mm-hmm. you had seven youth who are doing this work in such complex ways. They're creating local ecosystems that support youth homelessness through the arts. They are Mm -hmm. engaging around racial justice and racial bullying online by creating apps. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen when they then enter these college contexts? And we're assessing readiness in terms of really base-level leadership or really transactional models that are about just Mm. base outcomes achievement. And these folks are already having community impact at at a scale that Mm -hmm. we might not even – it just – for me, it cues up my own biases around where development is, how it happens, and Mm -hmm. how I'm meeting people or not meeting people where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And John, that ties into some of the work that you did with Ben Korea around motivation for leadership. You know, we talk about motivation for learning, but, um, 
you know, people are motivated when they're doing something that has intrinsic meaning um, and that they could see the effects of. And how do we place, create more spaces like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe part of the shift is moving away from sort of these tailored curriculums to creating incubation chambers where people come and the perception is they're already whole and we can infuse some learning, but they're bringing with them even more than we already acknowledge lived experiences that go far beyond the models, the skill sets, the activities that, that we work with. I think that's so, I think that what you're working against there is something that's so ingrained in a lot of us though as educators is the idea of, and I know, John, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, the idea of it's so much easier in a space to, you know, and maybe, you know, to reference, you know, a phrase that Julie mentioned earlier, but, you know, like some of this is imposter syndrome, some of this is like developmental readiness or like paternalism that's like couched as developmental readiness. Um, but, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a hard thing to say, let's put the subject really at the center and then we're just going to, you know, we're going to incubate this conversation and we're going to let go. It's a lot, it's a lot, you know, from a, you know, like I've done work and I'm, you know, you know, and I'm the expert, I'm going to facilitate this conversation. I'm going to be the person who's leading it, or I'm going to be the one that's lecturing it. That is a, you know, that is more ingrained in, you know, in what we think about authority and who should be conveying information. And it's a lot, it's a lot scarier thing to say like, no, we're just going to go in and we're going to be discussing this and we're going to create a space where we can really have a, where we can really have a, a meaningful, you know, where we can really have a meaningful conversation and sort of argue joyfully, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. you know, I guess my, I have some, a, I don't know if this is actually pushback, but it's a thought that occurs to me um, around um, how do you how do you balance the voices though of the um, the wisdom of the elders? You know, how do you mm-hmm. how do you bring in the context of history? You know, I I feel like when I'm interacting, I have a 17 year old um, senior, and I feel like there are ways that I'm really set in trying to make sure he understands, you know, as he develops and as he leads. And at the same time, I'm trying to figure out um, um, how I can incorporate or loosen up, you know, my, my stance to be able to allow room for his fresh thought on my ideas, you know. And so it's just kind of this balance between the, you know, myself as a, I guess I, I've been told I'm older generation, but I don't still feel that way. But. <laughs> <laughs> ditto, ditto, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, I, I get shocked every time someone says that. I was like, wait, you're talking about me? What? So, <laughs> but, you know, how to make sure that, you know, how do we balance it so that there is wisdom that can come from that, but also space for those fresh ideas so that we lead towards, um, you know, ways that are really um, substantial in terms of change. Um, that's the part that I, I still struggle with a bit, how to do that, how to listen, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that's open to the young people and also talk about here are some things that have been tried before and how, to, how do you bring all of that together to a forward movement. 
Julie, can I ask you a question that ties to that? So to me, Sherry, when I heard you talking, for me, I automatically went to this idea of like generativity. And maybe what you're talking about is having that through line and that, that like holding constant both the wisdom of elders, that things can be learned from past lived experience and contextualized to, con to contemporary knowledge, right? So it, I'm curious from Julie, with your work with LID and in other areas, do you see that as more of a generative yeah. approach or is that the wrong language maybe? Well, I, I love that connection, John, and thinking of that. What really sprung to my mind is some of the bad things I see happening in the name of social innovation around the country, especially where like, we give freshmen thousands of dollars to go into low-income communities they don't understand, to go make a change and make a difference, and then we put it on our website. Isn't that amazing? Without sort of doing the work that community organizers and community development folks have done for so long about how are you understanding root causes, how are you acknowledging the wisdom that exists in those communities and what's been tried before, how are you partnering with people for the changes that they want to see happen and not in this paternalistic kind of space. So I do think mm -hmm. some of the stuff that comes, especially some of the Stanford lean startup stuff where you try a bunch of things is really dangerous to some communities um, and that we... I see universities organizing around this exciting innovation um, without sort of stepping back and thinking about what you're talking about, John, is like, what does this look, how do we sustain this over time? What do we know that's gone before? How do we sort of um, capture indigenous wisdoms in these spaces? So I don't know. My, my head immediately went to the social entrepreneurship versus sort of community right. engagement kind of models um, and where, how are we like replicating colonialist models? But mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, Julie knows this, I love this, uh, there's a phenomenal blog that's about the um, seductive reduction of other people's problems. And for me, I immediately think of um, Grace Lee Boggs' work, that, that the work needs to start in the community. If you start in and from the community, then that elder wisdom becomes generative and gets passed down and twists and turns in this lived narrative. And that's very different than let's drop in and uh, think that, I mean, it's, to me, what you're describing goes beyond even like the savior complex and social entrepreneurialism, um, which I do think still has some interesting value added when it's tied to that generativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I actually think, think I'm kind of, yeah, that's what I think. I kind of feel like it's just an emerging field that hasn't sort of appreciated, you know, it's got, there's more to learn. And I do feel like some of the, like I said, community organizing and other movements that's come before this have already arrived at some of that wisdom. So I, just, I feel like they are getting there. If you read the journals, um, that there's more and more sort of awareness that you should not innovate on other people. <laughs> but um, it's easy to get excited about the brand new shiny idea. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing that up, Sherry and John. That's interesting to kind of recenter the conversation. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. All right, so um, what happened, what has occurred this year in student leadership or um, uh, that, that scholarship and practice uh, are still trying to figure out how to respond to? John, any, any sort of initial thoughts there? Sure. So, I mean, I think there's a whole lot that has happened um, that would lead either to, to scholarly or practice-based considerations. But I think what I would focus on is something that, I've seen play out in conferences I've been at, in conversations with folks through the NFL study as we prep for that, and in conversations with colleagues. And so that's this dynamic tension between competency and actualized capacity. 
And so I think one of the things that is a struggle still for us in the educational environment that in some other sectors they've gotten a little further along in is this notion that we build capacity, we build knowledge, skills, attitudes, but that doesn't mean that that actually gets translated into practice. Mm-hmm. And so how do we actually study that translational work where you're building someone's knowledge, skills, and attitudes, you're building their capacity, competency, whatever you want to call it, and then they actually do something with it. And we know all sorts of things already about the role of efficacy and motivation, as Julie alluded to, but there's something else there around the privilege of a higher education context where we rest on the assumption that just because we build capacity, that we take latent potential, that it's going to translate into some meaningful effect. And so for me, I'm really thinking now around what does it mean to take that latent potential and not make assumptions that people don't have that potential through these sort of deficit mindsets, but what does it mean to move that latent potential to actualized capacity? Not actual capacity, but actualized capacity where there's some type of act and not just behavioral, but some type of implementation um, that we can then measure and understand. And and in particular for me, I'm always curious about what is that pathway? So when someone actually moves to the practice of leadership, what's happening that facilitates that? Because we could spend all day talking about what the needs are and the wants for social, you know, socially responsible leadership, any other type of leadership. But at the end of the day, if we're just training people and we're building these capacities in a vacuum that mm-hmm. we're not testing to see how they translate, we really haven't done much good to transform society. We've just mm-hmm. engaged in the rhetoric of social transformation. So for me, that's, that's the thing I think I would love us all collectively to struggle with a little bit more um, mm-hmm. in terms of understanding. Okay, great. How about, uh, how about you, Julie? Well, John, I'm still thinking John's uh, wise comments. I wanted to say preacher, yes, sir. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's culturally inappropriate, but anyway, um, because I definitely, I mean, I feel like you're onto something, and I, you know, I'm in more military spaces than I often care to be, and they have such thoughtful leadership development plans where people actually intentionally design um, places for enactment as well as places for learning. So there's something to be lear- learned about that, about intentionally shaping leadership journeys and then allowing for spontaneity and serendipity and all that kind of stuff. But um, do we give students the next steps, especially as they're leaving university settings? Um, I think that's one. I know for me that was my rockiest time in my life was um, leaving the safety of the college campus and going into the quote-unquote real world. Um, I don't know. When I think about this question, Miles, the thing that came up for me was how to establish trust you know, um, in an era of distrust, right? So we're in this place where, you know, all this controversy and these violation stories coming out and this echo chambers and this dichotomous sort of which side are you on kind of thinking. And then we know that trust is an essential component, especially of shared and relational leadership. And I think it's one of the most ignored parts of leadership and like how do we go about doing that? And it probably has something to do with what Sherry was talking about, about spending more time um, in relationship and worrying less about outcome. Um, but how do we do that, and what are the elements of trust? I don't know. And I sort of was looking, I was 
didn't get to go to the International Leadership Association this meeting this year, but I looked through the book, and there were so many interesting sessions on peace leadership and trauma healing and John Stenmore to revive connective leadership and, and others and compassionate leadership, benevolent leadership, leadership and humility. So I kept hearing sort of these people craving um, um, that leadership and, um, and trust to me is the through line for all of that. So I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Sherry, any, uh, any thoughts here? Wow, I, I, um, I'm basking in enjoying what my colleagues are saying, and um, really it's making me think a lot about, um, you know, just the idea of um, building trust, how do you translate that, and also the idea of, um, of practice. So when all of that comes into my mind, I, I think I took sort of an overview look at it, and I thought about what higher education isn't doing well or needs to do better, um, or in the, the academy in general. And I think it's that we're not doing a good job of translating um, what we're talking about in the ivory tower to the actual people on the streets, and, um, and we're getting dinged for that. And so I think that, to me, has to do with um, how we actually work um, with students to teach them, you know, I, I think John was mentioning, you know, these students are doing some of this really great work, um, great leadership work when they're in their communities in high school, um, you know, come to college, um, and then what we're saying isn't actually translating for them into how they're going to use that and, and in a more immediate way for when they go into um, um, work again or do something else with that they use their degree for. So I just think in general I feel like higher education would be more trustworthy, would be more um, uh, directly referred to in ways that matter if we can figure out how to talk, how to translate our work into um, everyday language that helps people to um, to learn and to figure out how to use the strategies that we think are so important. So that's what came to my mind. I think it's it's related into what my colleagues said, but it's it's just that translational part of it. How do we make sure that we're doing the work of our or trans talking about our good work in ways that people can actually use it? Yeah, Sherry, like just to double down and say you are totally on the money with that. I've come into this new sphere and I work with brilliant folks who are consistently saying to me, wait, what? And it's not because I'm so brilliant, it's because I use language that has been learned through higher ed that is actually distancing in some ways from um, connection and from education and maybe ill-prepared. I wonder to what extent when you said that I've been sort of indoctrinated and not stepped far enough outside of, of my boundaries and echo chamber to understand that translational process myself. So mm. like snap, snap, snap to that. John, one of my students, one of my, I've been meaning to share this with you and I hope this is not the inappropriate venue to do that. One of my students had the best comment about your book. He's like, this Dugan guy is so amazing. Like he uses these huge words and then he uses words like pizzled or talks about zombie leadership. He's like, I can't get a read on him. He's so smart and yet so funny. Like, and I was like, yeah, you got him. That's good. <laughs> so you my have the both ends so of the smart and so dumb <laughs> at the same time. You have the ends of the spectrum covered. But Sherry brings a good point. Yeah. 
But Sherry brings up a good point about, you know, our institutions deserving of trust. I'm certainly not implying that we need to trust blindly. Um, oh, yeah. No, no. I didn't hear what you were saying in that way at all, but okay. it just it seemed related to me to the idea of um, it seems related to me to part of the problem around trust for me is that um, our institutions are being doubted because mm -hmm. the things that we value within the institution are ways that we talk with each other and not ways mm -hmm. that we actually engage with yeah. the public. So yeah. I, I was thinking it was a related thing, not at all, um, not at all trying to um, change what you said. The number one problem of critical theory, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So. Uh, Wendy Wagner once told me that Susan Comeves can see the future. So let's do our best Susan impression and project a little. What do you all, what do you all see coming in, in, um, in your scholarly areas uh, in 2018? Um, um, yeah, and sorry, we'll uh, start with Julie. I apologize. Well, first of all, Wendy's right. I do think Susan can see the future. Um, and one reason I, I, I was like, why is that? You know, and one reason I think she's so prescient is that she actually reads widely across fields and disciplines. And even her media consumption is really interesting. Like she'll admit that she watches more Law and Order than any other person. You know, she, from the very erudite to, um, she reads and, and, and watches in lots of places, which to me is a hallmark of a fascinating mind and also is why she's able to make connections and see trends before other people see them when they're more narrowly focused. Um, but here's my best Susan impression. Are you ready? <laughs> I just remember I was talking to a colleague, Graziella McCarran, and we were talking about how Susan used to always say, trust the process, trust the process. <laughs> so I think Susan would say whatever's to come is the right thing to come, and she'll be happy and excited about what unfolds. Um, and then I was sort of, but then she's also signaling what matters to her by the New Directions series she's editing. And so some of the volumes she has coming out are about, surprise, surprise, developmental readiness and leadership, um, data analytics and how we do competency-based assessment of leadership learning, my favorite critical perspectives on gender and leadership, digital leadership learning. So I feel like she's in the perfect role right now where she's able to sort of signal to the rest of us what we should be thinking about by working with Kathy Guthrie and editing this New Directions for Student Leadership series. Mm. I don't know, Sherry, do you know Susan Comoves? <laughs> well. I do. <laughs> I do. I do, do, you I think agree she... completely. I don't know her well, but I agree completely, and I also agree um, with everything you're saying about the New Direction series, too. So. Do you think she can <laughs> and, see the future? And, and I don't know. I might have, I, I, my students all often say that I say trust the process all the time, so I'm not sure where that got started. <laughs> I, totally, <laughs> I totally agree with what you're saying, yeah, that we have to trust the process, and, and it'll, it'll happen in some way. Okay, Sherry, what do you, what do you see coming for the, for the upcoming year? Yeah, I think I think it's sort of related to related to trust the process in that um, I feel like the curtain is off. You know, I've been calling it different things, but I sometimes lately have been calling it the magician's curtain that was hiding all of the pain and the um, um, un, you know the unjust things that were happening in the world and all the inequity. And um, now it's um, now the curtain is off. Um, mm. So I think um, before I used to spend my time explaining to people that there were things behind the curtain, you know, here are the things behind the curtain. Now it's 
you can just see them, you know, they're just right there. And so while I, um, while I think on the one hand it's horrific, on the other hand, my optimist side says, okay, well, we can no longer, we can no longer deny. So um, I, I, I hope that means um, that we're going to see unexpected leaders emerge um, mm. and we're going to hear people who um, are advocating for justice in ways that may not be directly about who they are, but they recognize that it's threatening who they are ultimately and who anyone is, um, is trying to be in the world. So all these attacks that we're, we're, we're receiving, I think, are, are creating unlikely allies, and I think that's going to be a key to how um, things are going to turn over for us in, in mm-hmm. the country, I hope. Okay, John. How about you? What do you uh, What do you see coming for 2018? Well, well, Miles, I'm going to make you go back a step because you launched into this question by asking us all to do our best Susan Comeves impersonation. <laughs> so, if I was going to do my best Susan Comeves impersonation, I could never capture her voice and I could never ca- capture her brilliance. But what I would do is I would first head to the mall, go to Chico's, buy the most stunning pantsuit. <laughs> I would deck myself out and go phenomenal like jewelry and then I would have a glass of Chardonnay in each hand and I would sit down with my crystal ball so that would be my <laughs> and then I would probably listen so intently to whoever was in front of me that they thought they were the center of the universe so that's a testament mm-hmm. to Susan how she shows up in spaces so I don't I, I haven't quite captured or learned all of that from her but that would be my impression of her to begin with um, if I channel that energy I'd say two things one is I would build off what Julie started to allude to around interdisciplinarity. Susan is phenomenal at that, and it's a skill that I've tried to learn from her. So what, what I would be thinking about and forecasting is, in particular, the way that neuroscience ought to be informing our work around leadership development. Mm. And in particular, I would want to queue up the work of some brilliant scholars like Valerie Purdy Greenaway. Um, and Kevin Oxner and Sonia Spina. And the first two in particular focus on uh, neuroleadership. Um, Valerie does a ton of work around intergroup relations and in particular minoritized groups and connection or misconnection that's a function of the neuroscience of dialogue and uh, interaction across difference that has such full range application for our work. Kevin Oxner does something very um, similar in neuroscience, but studies it from a different lens around emotional regulation in contentious conversations. And if we were to take some of what they were doing around leadership, uh, it, which I think we will be doing, um, the, the Neuroscience Leadership um, Institute is doing a ton of work around this, we would be translating that into how we, we prepare people, what training looks like, what development looks like uh, in the college leadership context. And then the second thing is, I think Susan has started to forecast this a little bit. I've heard her speak to this a bit in the last year in particular. But I think with the current political climate that we're living under, it it doesn't parallel what we've taught around leadership development. So Mm. we've had sort of a pendulum swing in training and development that moved away from leader development, almost Mm. all the way to the other side to um, thinking of it as full-on process. And I think what we see now politically and in terms of leadership of major organizations is that we have to do the both and. If we focus so much on leadership development at the expense of leader development, we end up with 
potentially dangerous authoritarian structures or people who are abusing a power and authority. And so I think if she was forecasting, she'd be telling us we have to do the both and of leadership mm -hmm. development and leader development or risk having leaders who don't value leadership but still have the authority to cause incredible damage. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. And thanks to our amazing guest today. Um, these folks are incredible minds and enormously generous for giving other time in this way. So thanks to Dr. Julie Owen, Dr. Sherry Watt, and Dr. John Dugan. Uh, final questions, friends. Let's end on a high note here. What are you excited about for 2018? John? Yeah, so I had um, an experience with a young person in uh, Newark, and we were reading actually Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And this young person said something that has stuck with me every day since that date um, that leads me into my framing of 2018, which was that Lincoln never suggested that we were guaranteed equity. What he said is, our Constitution is, offers us a proposition of equity and that we have to live into that proposition every day. There's no guarantee. And so for me, I have a whole lot of critical hope heading into 2018, and I'm excited for seeing what we can do to leverage and help remind people that every one of us contributes to that proposition and that it's all of our responsibilities to move towards progress in that regard. So um, I, I just think that as difficult as things are right now, there's also a coming together with one another in a way that if we can leverage and figure out how to manifest, actually could change the ways we're thinking for our generation, future generations. So I'm excited about that piece because it was a total reminder that these young voices have more wisdom than I often have. And um, so I'll leave it with that. Okay. Great. Julie, how about you? I, I'm sort of agreeing with what John's going. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about helping students get past template activism where they like print off the demands off the web and then go. <laughs> haven't really thought about how their own context works and whether that applies. Um, and so we have a lot of students who sort of see who can perform outrage the most you know, versus actually focusing on achieving results. Um, and so I'd like to see 2018 be about helping students acknowledge what change looks like as it's happening um, and how we sort of help them focus on movement towards change and sort of seeing the iterative nature of change, that would be great for me. Although I have to admit, my first answer to this question was the royal wedding. <laughs> so between <laughs> Harry and Meghan Markle. But then when John gave his answer, I felt compelled to like give a more scholarly answer. <laughs> me too. I know. I'm feeling the pressure. I didn't have that in mind either. Julie, in all, in all fairness, my response was my thing I'm most excited about is RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star Season. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, yes. The Aquaman movie? Um, I don't know. No. Oh, yeah. That's number two. And number okay. three is the proposition of equity. <laughs> Maybe not in that order. Uh, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is, is uh, basically a, per, a, a perfect form of entertainment. So I'm, uh, I'm also looking forward to that. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, how about you? And feel free to go as light with your response <laughs> as you'd like to. Well, I'll start with um, um, I, I'm looking forward to um, my kid graduating from high school, so that's something I'm looking forward to in 2018 and, um, you know, helping him figure out his leadership path. And, um, I, and I, for those of out there that know me, him, he's a 
plays football and also is a wrestler, and I'm a particularly crazy wrestling fan, so <laughs> I look forward to the wrestling season, which is only lasts a few months for high school, so for the next few months of, and the start of 2018. Um, and then um, I also am looking, for, looking forward to um, ways to um, work with um, leaders on how to, how to really develop their skills for facilitating and engaging with difference. I think one of the things that I've noticed in, um, in young folks today is that there is a, um, familiarity, there is um, desire, there is all of those things that are, that are the right ingredients, but trying to really help people to develop the skills to, to lead and facilitate um, um, social change um, as student leaders is something that I'm excited about seeing and, and excited about hearing students um, think more about that and to work more directly on how they can personally develop and develop their own skills and also how to set up the conditions in the environment that help them to be their best leader, mm. um, leader you know, themselves as the best leader as well as um, bring that out in the people that they're working with. So. Those are the kinds of things I'm looking forward to. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, good. Hey, Miles. Yes? Uh, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't put you on the spot. What are you most looking forward to? <laughs> Besides I almost said Drag Race All-Stars 3. <laughs> I, almost, I almost said in our prep to this that I knew that I was mentally prepared, obviously not conceptually prepared, but mentally prepared for John to ask me a question. Ask me a question that I wasn't ready to respond to. Um, I uh, am in a in a new role here at uh, at Clemson, and uh, am uh, just really looking forward to the to the uh, to the work that that we have uh, that we have coming down here. We've got a, a event that we're uh, trying to put together, sort of uh, uh, last minute, uh, to uh, match incoming students who are coming in uh, in orientation in January. Uh, uh, do an uh, assessment of their uh, involvement interests and then try to make uh, really relational connections for them based off of that. Um, and uh, I'm excited about that, trying to do something sort of like a, kind of like a student org fair for introverts. So um, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think that would be it uh, from a pop culture standpoint. Uh, I've got uh, many things to be excited about, although I'm really not excited <laughs> about a year a year without Game of Thrones. So that, uh, so that, so that I'm that I'm not thrilled about. But um, so, all right. Well, um, all right. You can get more information about the Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com/backslash/sa/lead. You can reach us. Uh, on Twitter at, at NASASLPKC or on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program, so please shoot an email over to NASPAleaderPodcast at gmail.com. Julie, John, and Sherry, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, so fun, Miles. yes. <laughs>